Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person or catch our online gatherings by checking out our website at online. We would love to hear from you. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning and welcome to week 22 of our series, Long Story Short. We took a one-week break last week as we celebrated our graduating seniors. Now, it was quite refreshing to camp out in one of the New Testament letters as Madeline encouraged us using Paul's words as he encouraged the church at Philippi. Now, as refreshing as it is to spend time reading the New Testament, it has been equally rewarding to spend time working our way through the Old Testament to give us a firm foundation of the story that leads to Jesus and also gives us wisdom for our world today as we work through the various issues and problems that we face in our day-to-day lives. And one of those modern-day problems that I face more often than I would like to admit is forgetting my password to various accounts. Does anybody else have this issue? Like it wasn't such an issue years ago when you could just get away with a password like ABC123 or password, but now you have to have all these different combinations of uppercase and lowercase and numbers and symbols and all these different things. And with multiple accounts, multiple email addresses, managing your passwords can become an overwhelming task. But all these companies understand our struggle. Take Google and Gmail as an example. I have a few different Gmail accounts. And on my personal computer, like my browser just remembers everything and fills it in. But if I try to log in from somewhere else new, like forget it. And so Google gives me an option right there for people like me that says, forgot your password. And so you either have to like answer some obscure security question or you get sent a link to another account to prove that it's you. But then it gives you a process for setting up a new password so that you can access your account. Have you ever asked, why does Google do this? They do this because they know there are people like me who fail and they want to have a relationship with me even though I fail and I can't remember my password. Now in this way, Google is like God. Now I'm sure Google's master plan is to have a relationship with every human in the world, although their desire is for self-serving purposes. God also wants to have a relationship with every person in the world, but his desire is actually for their good. And he wants to have this relationship with us, even though he knows we're going to fail over and over again. In fact, as you've been reading through the Bible this year, if you've, if you've been taking part in the long story short reading plan, you've been reading about failures of people time and time again. But you also read about a faithful God, that although the people break their promises to God all the time, he doesn't break his promises. For example, he makes a covenant with Noah. And what does Noah do right after he makes the covenant? Noah gets drunk and is involved in some questionable activities in a tent. You keep reading and God makes a covenant with this man of faith called Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Like this is a fantastic chapter where God appears in this burning pot with a torch and he does this Hebrew ceremony. That's in chapter 15. And before we get to the end of verse 4 in the next chapter, Abraham has slept with his wife's servant. So in your Bible, these two accounts are probably like on the same page. That's a cue to us readers. Even though God's people fail, God continues to be faithful. 
Moses goes up on a mountain where God is making a covenant with Moses. And while he's doing that on a mountain with this blazing smoke and fire, you can look at it and you can tell that something's happening while the covenant is being made. The people are down below breaking the covenant by making an idol like they used to have in Egypt while the covenant is being made on the mountain. Yet God is faithful. The people are not. He makes a covenant with a guy named David. And David has sex with a woman he doesn't even know and then covers it up by killing her husband. Like, what is going on? These are the kind of people that God decides to have a relationship with. Google pursues relationships with people who are going to fail and forget their password. God pursues relationships with people who are constantly failing him. Like it's in our genes. We forget. We make mistakes. We fail. So the question we have to answer is, how will God make a provision for our failure? With Google, you just click this link. What's God going to do? How will God keep his promises that he's made to his people, even though his people fail all the time? That's the question we're going to try and tackle today. And here's the short answer. Essentially, God is going to make a brand new covenant. A covenant that's not dependent or at risk due to human failure. Now, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Jeremiah 31. We've been in Jeremiah for the past few weeks, and we have finished reading the last chapter yesterday. Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible when it comes to the amount of words, and we've only had two Sundays to try to cover this book. Jeremiah is full of some of the most well-known passages in our culture, although sometimes they lose some of their greater meaning when they're ripped out of context. But maybe you've heard some of these. The word of Yahweh came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Or Jeremiah 9. This is what Yahweh says. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me that I am Yahweh who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these, declares Yahweh. Or Jeremiah 17, The heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond cure, who can understand it? Or finally, Jeremiah 29, For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So Jeremiah does not disappoint when it comes to possible content to talk about. But if we're going to choose one chapter not to miss, it's got to be Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, just a reminder of who Jeremiah is. He is a prophet to the people of Judah leading up to the time of their capture and exile by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. As a prophet, Jeremiah is God's spokesperson. Prophets speak for God like a press secretary would speak for the president. And this prophet Jeremiah speaks one of the most important and significant verses in all of the Old Testament. That's a curious phrase, the Old Testament. Have you ever wondered where that phrase Old Testament comes from? Well, if you answered the book of Jeremiah, you would be right. Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares Yahweh. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. 
No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know Yahweh, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So look at verse 31. You see that phrase, new covenant? This is the only time this phrase occurs in the Hebrew Bible. Now the word covenant, the English word translates the Hebrew word barith. When the Hebrew word barith was translated into Latin, they translated this word testamentum, from which we get our English word testament. And when the early church was putting together all the letters that they had gathered together, the gospels about Jesus, the letters written by people like the apostles, when they were putting together all of this in the second century, it was a man named Melito who was this bishop in Sardis. And he gathered all these collections together and he decided to call them the New Testamentum. Now he got that phrase and that idea from Jeremiah 31, 31, because this collection of books represents the new covenant. So what is the new covenant? What are the aspects of the new covenant? Well, first of all, it's a covenant that God makes with Israel. That's verse 31. I will make this covenant with the people of Israel, the people of Judah, but it will not be like a covenant that I made with their forefathers. Why? Because he says they fail. They forget their password. They fail all the time. It will be a different kind of covenant. What's going to be in the new covenant? Well, he says in verse 33, I will write my law in their hearts and in their mind. So the new covenant is about an internalization of God's Torah. It's not exterior, not on tablets of stone, not something to go find, but internally God's Torah will be in his people. The third aspect of the new covenant, which is like mind blowing, is that God, this great, mighty, omniscient, all knowing God will forget the sins of the people. He will not remember them. He will blank them out like, oh, I forgot my password. Oh, I messed up. Oh, I sinned. God says, what? No, gone. Like that's the new covenant. And how will God accomplish this new covenant? How is he going to accomplish this with people who fail all the time? Well, the first way you come to this new covenant is this. God himself will get involved. God himself will be the mediator of the new covenant. He has to get him involved himself. He can't trust people like we forget our passwords. We forget all the time. We fail. We don't keep the Torah. So God will get involved. Now, this leads to all kinds of factors that the people of Jeremiah's day would have no idea about, specifically how God himself would be involved. Jeremiah proclaiming this kind of news would be like us breaking into the First Continental Congress in 1775 and explaining to George Washington that we're going to land a man on the moon. Like the airplane wouldn't take flight for another hundred years. So Washington wouldn't even have a concept of people taking flight, let alone building something that would break through the atmosphere and carry a human to this rock floating around our planet. Imagine how difficult that would be for Washington to compute. Now imagine Jeremiah trying to break the news that the God of the universe, the great, awesome creator God, was going to enter into his creation as a human being. Talk about wires short-circuiting in your brain. That God himself, who's brought all of these things to Israel, he'll become a little embryo in a Hebrew teenage girl and be born from her. He'll grow up. God will have a runny nose. He'll smell like we smell. If you hit him, God will bruise. If you cut him, God will bleed. Whoa! Like the people in Israel's day would say, that's crazy. Like no way. 
That's the factor no one saw coming. And God becomes incarnate. And He is the God with us to keep the promise of the new covenant. That's amazing. Jesus, when He gathered with His friends the night before His death, has this little phrase that you've heard before. We talk about it most every week when we go to the table. And it's all about the new covenant. Jesus says in Luke 22, In the same way, after the supper, He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The new covenant will be established when God bleeds, when God dies. This is the establishment of the new covenant. All of this keeping covenants from the past, the writer of Hebrews goes on to explain what this is all about. He refers to the new covenant as the eternal covenant in Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everlasting good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The writer of Hebrews refers to the new covenant as the eternal covenant. God himself gets involved. That's how he will keep the new covenant. When he dies on a cross, it establishes the new covenant. Now, the writer of Hebrews is preoccupied with this whole idea, and he spends much of his letter talking about the new covenant. So if you take your Bibles and you turn to Hebrews, uh, it's in the New Testament. Uh, We've been so much in the Old Testament. The New Testament, you remember why that's called? Now we do. Hebrews chapter 10. Now the writer actually starts his argument in chapter 8 and then through chapter 9 and then into chapter 10. And he's trying to make the argument for something. He's writing to Hebrew Christians. They are Jews who have become followers of the Messiah, Jesus, but they're facing great persecution, especially from their Hebrew or Jewish families and friends. And so they have like one foot out the door on Jesus thinking they should just go back to the way things have always been. And the Hebrew Hebrews writer is saying, no, 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 no. Like the Messiah and what we're doing now is much superior to the old covenant. If you look at chapter eight, verse six, he starts his argument like this. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Whoa, wait a minute. Does this sound familiar? He actually quotes the passage we just read from Jeremiah 31. Now, this is actually the longest Old Testament quotation you find in the New Testament. There's your Friday night Bible trivia you can impress your friends with. So not only is Jeremiah the longest book of the Bible, it also has the longest quotation in the New Testament. Now, he quotes the whole passage, and then he gives this commentary on what this passage means in verse 13. He says, By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Obsolete and outdated. Ouch. That is pretty strong judgment. And then he continues this argument to the Hebrew Christians in chapter 9. He's going to try and explain to them why they don't do sacrifices anymore, why they don't offer bulls and goats, why they don't have a temple and all the things that they're used to. Well, it's all part of the new covenant. His argument concludes in chapter 10, starting in verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. 
For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He's saying all of the sacrifices and the whole system, they simply pointed to the need of one sacrifice that would completely wipe away sins. And that's the sacrifice of Christ. Now he goes on to explain that in the next few verses, but we'll pick it up in verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Now take a minute and let that sink in. That's huge. That's big. Why? Well, I'm a sinful person. We're all sinful people. We sin all the time. But when we place our faith in Christ and in Him alone for our salvation, in Him alone for a relationship with God, in Him alone for our ability to have some relationship with this great being, when we place our faith in Him, God looks at us and from His perspective, He goes, Jeff Polk, sin? No, no, like he's forgot it. It's wiped out. Not because of anything that I have done, but because of what Christ has done when he died on the cross. God is completely satisfied. In fact, it says he has made perfect forever me and you if you've placed your faith in Christ. And then in verse 14, he has this phrase to those who are being made holy. So it's both aspects. From God's perspective, we are perfect. And from our perspective, well, it's a process. So we have been wrestling with this question of how is God going to accomplish this new covenant? The very first thing is this, God himself will get involved. The second is this, God will internalize it through the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would actually indwell people. The Holy Spirit will come to us and through the Holy Spirit, he will indwell us. And that's how it's internalized into our hearts. We have the words of Jesus in the gospel of John, where Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, Keep my commands and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. You talk to the people around Jeremiah and you go, well, actually, uh, see, God himself will be in us. And Jeremiah and those people would be like, that's crazy. You got to be kidding me. Like, God living in me, I'll blow up. It's like, no, no, no. God himself will be in us. He will indwell us. Jesus says in John 14, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Like Jesus knew the Torah. He was all about the Torah and he kept it perfectly. And we are reminded when we go against the Torah by the Spirit of God who indwells us. That's not just your conscience. That's God saying, hey, now, like, what are you doing? This is the new covenant. 
internalizing his Torah in our hearts. The third aspect that Jeremiah's people would have no, about, no idea about is this. The new covenant means that God will define his people not by their physical descent from Abraham, but by their spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. And this will begin a brand new thing called the church. So if you ask Jeremiah or the people, how do you have a relationship with God? The answer is, well, you've got to be an Israelite. You've got to be born into the covenant promise. But now, something new will take place. It's actually not totally new because the Old Testament prophesies about this in, in, in many different verses. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Moses, in his last message, talked about circumcision of the heart. Isaiah talks about circumcision of the heart. Ezekiel talks about it. This is what God was always going for. But to the people of Israel, the most important thing was the circumcision of the body. And Paul says, no, you're not a Jew if that's like the only thing. But it's about another kind of circumcision. So this is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, you become a member involuntarily. You're born into it. The sign of the old covenant is something that happens to you in an involuntary way. Like if you're a man, you're circumcised. You have no say in that whatsoever. The new covenant is different. The new covenant is something that you voluntarily get involved in. It's not just about being descended from Abraham physically. It's not just about being related to a Jewish person, but anyone can now become a part of the new covenant. If you place your faith in Christ, it's that spiritual relationship. And a sign of the new covenant is something that, do, that doesn't happen to you involuntarily, but voluntarily. You decide to get baptized. It's not an involuntary act. And Paul makes this clear in Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now Paul's going to use some metaphors to describe this union of the Gentiles and the Jews. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. 
So Paul uses metaphors to talk about the joining of Gentiles and Jews. And he uses two different metaphors. The first one is you have now become this new human being in the body of Christ the Messiah. The second, you are now joined together to become one new building. The Messiah is the cornerstone and this new building brings both of you together. Now another metaphor Paul uses in Romans is the metaphor of a tree. That our roots go back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because we as Gentiles have been grafted into this tree to join Israel as God's family. And there's this brand new thing formed at Pentecost called the church. The church is new, but it's related to the covenant of promise, but it's made through the new covenant. But how do these words of Jeremiah and the fulfillment of them through Jesus apply to us? It means if I place my faith in Christ, I'm a part of the family of God. And that should identify me more than anything else. When I look around the world, I'm not looking for people who are just physically related to me, but people who are spiritually related to me, people of different class, different race, different nationalities. That's the most important thing. I'm first and foremost a member of the family of God. I mean, God is our father, our parent. We're family. That's most important. And then after that, it's like, well, you know, I'm a man. That's my gender. You know, I'm like generation Y.2. I'm an American citizen. You know, those kind of things. But the first and most important thing is I am a member of the family of God. And that joins me to people of different cultures, political parties, races, nationalities. The world does not think this way. The world says what's most important about you is fill in the blank. You know, the most important thing about me is my gender. The most important thing about me is my nationality. The most important thing about me is my political party. The most important thing about me is my race. That's most important. And the Bible says, no, members of the new covenant say those things are important. They count. But the most important thing is that I'm a part of God's family and it joins me together with people of different classes and races and nationalities. And I should want to get to know these people, people that apart from the gospel, I might never know or never even care to know because they're so different from me. But the new covenant says more important than race or gender or nationality is the fact that we are all members of one body, one household, one family tree. We have the same parent. As members of the new covenant, it should make a huge difference in all our lives and the way we live. The new covenant means I'm related to the people of Israel in the past, and I'm related to all kinds of different cultures, races, and people in the present, and we need to praise God for that. So each week we come to a table, and at that table, we invite everyone that God would invite, which includes the whole world. And at that table, we have different people from different times and different places. And we sit down and we remember that we are joined together through one name, the name of Jesus. Because on the cross, as Jesus bled and he died for our sins and that of the world, he opened up a door to a new covenant. And so each week we take a piece of bread and we remember the body that was broken for us. We take a cup which represents the new covenant of the blood that's being poured out for us. And as we take these symbols of the new covenant, let us remember as we look around the table at different people that we are one family together made possible through Jesus Christ. Let's go to the table. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week.